Feeding a growing global population, using less land, water, and energy is a lofty goal. It's even a bigger challenge when you're looking to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and control rising input costs and supply chain shortages. I'm Robert Colangelo, and this is GreenSense, where we bring you eco-innovations. Like the many advancements happening in the world of controlled environment agriculture, the science of growing indoors in greenhouses and indoor vertical farms. And the man with his finger on the pulse of CEA, Chris Higgins, General Manager of Hort Americas, joins us now. Welcome, Chris. Hey, Robert. How you doing? Well, it's been a while since we last talked. Uh, welcome back to the show. And we have a lot to cover today, so I'm going to get right into it. Uh, Excellent. Growing indoors has been accelerated by advancements in LED grow light technology. This gives you the ability to have light even when the sun doesn't shine, or maybe when it doesn't shine so much. So bring us up to date on some of the new policy and state legislations that are regulating the use of electricity and the unintended consequences these regulations are having on indoor grow operations. Yeah, so where I thought I would start today is kind of to break it down into three different groups that are providing us as an industry with uh, standards, procedures, protocols, and legislation or regulation. So let's start with uh, the Design Lighting Consortium, or which we know in the industry as DLC. DLC is a nonprofit. DLC collaborates with utilities, rebate programs, lighting manufacturers, designers, the building owners, and local authorities, i.e. government, to provide standards by which lighting companies can report uniform uh, performance. That way, as an industry, we start to get an understanding of, okay, is are we comparing apples to apples or are we comparing apples to oranges when looking at producing supplemental light or sole source light to grow plants? Second part in this equation are the utility companies themselves. So if you look across the United States um, and into Canada, there are a lot of incentives for plant producers to switch from uh, lower performing sources of light to more energy efficient performing sources of light. And so, but they really do change um, going from one state to another, and sometimes within those states based on the different utilities uh, uh, that are available within a, a given state. Now, if you follow the line, you'll notice that a lot of this equates back to the states that have made cannabis legal in some form or format, because cannabis is the crop that people are growing right now in which profits historically, this is changing, but profits historically have been high and growers have been using a lot of energy and a lot of power to produce those crops. So that leads us to an example, and let's use the example of state of California, where they have what's called Title 24. And Title 24 is, you know, and I'm going to put this in layman's term, is basically legislation that is forcing growers of plant material in a controlled environment to reduce their energy footprint. And they're focusing on how they manage the climate, AC, heat, and dehumidification, as well as the light that they're producing within these controlled environments. And I'll stop there and see what questions you might have for me. So a couple of things is, uh, why would a utility uh, be concerned about power usage? Um, you could say it's a stress on its resources so that they don't have to make new resource improvements, whether that's substations, et cetera, et cetera, um, that they can make their power go further. 
without making massive investments on their side. One of the challenges for utility companies is they like a balanced load. They want to be able to supply power to users that use the same amount of power all day long. Do indoor grow operations provide that or do they have peaks and valleys which uh, make it a real stress on the utility? Yeah, it depends on the type of grow, right? If you're looking at, um, let's say, a vertical farm growing lettuce as an example, that vertical farmer may have the ability to provide a uniform use of electricity because that crop doesn't have certain photoperiod requirements, meaning that you don't need to provide light at in certain um, periods to produce a flower or to produce fruit or to produce, um, um, you know, cannabis in this case. Um, so that in a lettuce facility, they may have the ability to balance it out. But if you look at a crop, and again, a lot of this legislation and regulation is being based on the production of cannabis, cannabis growers can't always do that because they're trying to force that plant to produce a flower in a given period of time. And that can mean, you know, that there's, they can't really balance it out. It's going to be a certain period of time per day, uh, regardless of what they're doing. So is the intent of this legislation to control indoor cannabis grows, or is it being uh, more uh, fair and, and treating all indoor grows? Uh, let's say that there are a lot more indoor cannabis facilities consuming a lot of electricity than there are vertical farms and greenhouse vegetable producers consuming a lot of electricity. So the way I would put it is that lettuce producers, tomatoes producers, pepper producers, et cetera, et cetera, we're getting caught up in something that the cannabis growers have created. Now, as an industry, we also are trying to increase our yields. And so in order to increase our yields in the production of vegetables, we are using more electricity. So as we drive to increase our output, by default, we're, we're falling into that same pattern of using a lot of electricity to produce uh, produce. Not that I want you to get into the mind of policymakers, because I like your mind the way it is, but uh, <laughs> was the intent of policymakers to regulate the cannabis industry, and this was an unintended consequence to uh, regulate the vegetable growers? That's my guess. My guess is because we don't have a lot of area of production for vegetables yet, it, using high amounts of electricity. My intent was that if you look at the title, if you go to the California Energy Codes and Standards, it says non-residential controlled environment horticulture. That, that is, that's, it's very broad, but it is definitely, when you look at the amount of businesses doing this, it's something they did for cannabis and everybody else has just gotten gobbled up. So why didn't they make the law specific to cannabis? That's a great question. I know as an industry, there are people lobbying for that to happen. Um, but I, I don't think that I, I really don't want to even guess. I, I just don't I don't think they had the ability. I don't think that um, legislators themselves really understand the difference. I was watching a news clip of the governor of Colorado who went into a lettuce greenhouse and was just amazed by the quote unquote amount of salad being grown inside of a facility. And, and I think that what we're really dealing with is not a lot of exposure to legislators in terms of what these facilities really look like. They just know that when they look at this stress on the grid, 
that, you know, that there's all of a sudden this new stress and that they need to do something to start to limit that stress. So bottom line, the indoor growers are under a lot of assault these days uh, with uh, supply chain issues, rising prices and sales price not going up as quick. What does that mean to these indoor growers of vegetables? Yeah, it, what it means for the indoor vegetable growers is they need to focus on efficiency, right? I, I think they need to be making sure that they focus on efficiency. And I think we can learn a little bit of what's going on in Europe right now as well. Um, you and I in the past have discussed the Dutch horticulture industry, and we have discussed how that is a model for the idea of sustainable agriculture production using um, controlled environments to produce tomatoes, peppers, and cucumbers. Right now, what we're seeing is that their source of energy was coming out of Russia, and it was in the form of inexpensive natural gas. As those natural gas prices have gone up, and I've heard numbers as high as three to 500% increases in the last six to 12 months, um, it's, being, it's become very difficult for those producers using their old methods to stay in business because they're just consuming too much electricity. So I think if we look at future-proofing our industry, while it's difficult right now, if we take the necessary steps to becoming more energy efficient today, we'll be in a position tomorrow where we can withstand some of these changes that we won't have any control over, right? We know the cost of power is going to be more expensive in 10 years than it is today. And we know that there's going to be more legislation and regulations around using it. So if we learn from that, we might be able to put ourselves in a better position today to prepare for 10 years from now. What about renewable energy microgrids? Let these uh, facilities be standalone and have their own uh, renewable energy power. I only have a couple of facilities that are fairly small today that have done that. Uh, I definitely think it's a way of the future. Um, not being an expert in that area, I think the only questions that I would ask is what kind of CapEx, in, uh, CapEx investments do we need to make to do that? And how big does our farms need to be to support that investment? Well, I think in the long run, this is fantastic. The short run, we're going to feel a little pain, but we're going to be a stronger, better industry from that. I agree with that. Let's uh, move on to another question. We hear all the time about supply chain shortages. What shortages are you seeing when it comes to growing inputs and packaging? Yeah, so the shortages that we're seeing are 100% tied to freight and logistics. Um, we, we were getting to a point where I thought we had good plans in the industry to work around, um, the congested ports, but over the last couple of months, the ports have gotten just as congested again. Um, and we're getting restrictions on what we can do in terms of moving product from one port to a next. So all of the restrictions right now that we're seeing are based upon not being able to get product through the ports of entry, uh, as quick as we once could. Um, and it does seem to be that we get bottlenecked at certain times, we might fix a problem. And then all of a sudden it comes right back to bite us in the butt. So whether that be labor strikes that we've seen in California um, or other, you know, other limitations and restrictions and overcrowding in, you know, on the Eastern seaboard, as well as in Texas, everything right now is tied back to congestion at the ports. Well, agriculture has become very globalized. Uh, what are the chances that we could shorten that supply chain and make our seeds, our fertilizer, our substrate, and our packaging all onshore? Uh, it's something that, you know, I'm working very hard to do. We have been able to reshore some products, but we, we're, we're in a situation where as we reshore, we have costs that are associated with that. 
I don't think any of us in the ag space want to drive up food prices any higher than we have to. So it's going to be a balance of reshoring products and doing it at a price point in which the farmer can continue to afford, uh, to afford to grow a crop that the consumer wants at that price point. Currently reshoring certain things like fertilizers are going to be very difficult because we don't have some of the natural resources needed uh, for all of the fertilizers that we consume in, in, in agriculture. But I do think you will start to see the reshoring of different manufacturing, whether it's packaging materials, equipment, I think you're going to start to see the reshoring. And when I mean, when I say reshoring, I'm not just limiting that to the United States. I think you're going to see manufacturing facilities in Canada and Mexico pop up as well. Well, inflation's impacting all of us. Uh, how's it impacting growing inputs? It's still impacting us. Um, I wish, and it seems like we should start to see a, get a, get a break, but just as we start to get a break, we end up with more problems at the port. Um, so, you know, I, the, one of the ways I look at it is a lot of things that we use in agriculture are tied to oil. And if you look at the last 12 months in oil, we've had prices range from 60 to $130 a barrel. Right now we're sitting in the mid nineties. I think last week we popped into the eighties for a bit. So I don't think we're going to see any lightening up on inflationary uh, um, pressures on our product until one, either consumption reduces, which we are starting to see a little bit of, but also until we start to get some loosening up and the price of oil, um, which I have no idea in predicting when that might happen. But again, over a 12 month period, we got to think as low as $63 a barrel, as high as about $132, $135 a barrel. Right now we're sitting at about 90, low $90 per barrel. And that I think has started to see some leveling off on these energy intensive products that we use like plastic pots, fertilizers, et cetera, et cetera. And so we started seeing some leveling off, but we haven't started to see any of the prices come down quite yet. Are the sales price of produce keeping up with the rising input costs? I'm going to say, <laughs> I'm going to say it depends on who you're talking to. So I think when you look at the sales price of produce that the consumer is paying, I think in some cases, yeah, it's keeping up with the, in, with inflation. But does that translate to what the farmer is getting per pound or per bushel or per, you know, per whatever unit of measure we want to use? I don't necessarily believe so. I know, as an example, tomato pricing was very soft throughout the spring, but that didn't necessarily equate to cheaper tomatoes at the produce aisle. So yes and no, right? Yes, I think the consumer's prices are keeping up with inflation, but I don't think the farmers are able to keep that same, that same increase. Well, that's not good. Rising input costs and uh, sales price not rising quick enough is, is going to be a problem at some point. It's going to put a lot of people out of business. Yeah. And I, and I think that's something that we should all be careful with and pay attention to. Um, it's not gotten any easy for, easier for the farmer through the pandemic. Um, but at the same point in time, um, I think we as consumers have become much closer to our food. So I would put the onus on this consumer kind of to demand that relationship with their farmer and, and make sure we're taking care of, you know, the farmer, both from a standpoint of investing in the products we consume, but the prices we pay to the farm itself. Well, did you ever hear the Johnny Cash song? I've been everywhere, man. <laughs> yes, I have. <laughs> well, that reminds me of you. You're one of the hardest working people in the horticultural industry. And I think in the last couple of months, you've been from Amsterdam to Amarillo. What's life like on the road in a post COVID or a, 
or, or an ongoing COVID environment, uh, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> I feel extremely fortunate. I have been uh, halfway around the globe and back since the beginning of the summer. Um, I feel com- I, I, really lucky that I haven't been impacted by a lot of the travel problems you hear about. But I think the, the biggest thing that I've noticed is that as a consumer of, and as a consumer and as a vegetarian who eats a lot of the products that I, you know, support farmers in growing, the, there's definitely a change in the restaurants, right? There's definitely a change in the size of the servings, the price that I'm paying for those things. So when people, when the consumers complain about those inflationary prices, I, I can relate. I, I notice it when I'm traveling. And I definitely notice when I'm home, my desire to shop at the grocery store and make my own food is much higher than it's ever been before. So it, it you know, in the, from a travel perspective, the people that I've encountered along the way have been great. I think everybody wants to be back to work. Everybody wants to get back to normal. It, we're just kind of struggling to get there. Well, I don't travel as much as you do. I concur with the restaurant issue. I've also found that the hotels just aren't there. They can't get help. The rooms aren't as clean as they used to be. And uh, that's been a real challenge too. Yeah, it's like anybody within the service industry, finding our way back and trying to figure out, you know, what's really at play. I try not to pass judgment on people too much, but service is different in 2022 than it was in 2019. And I'll kind of stop there so I don't pick sides, but service is not the same. Well, I used to work in the Soviet Union and my uh, Russian colleague would always say, Russian service, no service. And I think that's (laughs) happening in the whole world these days. So in closing, Chris, any other significant happenings in the CEA industry you'd like to share with our listeners? No, I think we're going the CEA industry. We have a a conference in November focused on energy consumption. Um, And that's one I'm really looking forward to because I'm really looking to see how we future proof our, our farms. What investments do we need to make today that make us strong for tomorrow? Uh, again, as a vegetarian, I'm very focused on this produce that we're growing because that's what I—that's what makes up my diet. So I want to see our farms future-proof themselves so that we create good jobs today as well as through tomorrow for uh, not only for people my age who are approaching 50, but the younger people coming in the industry today, uh, in the next couple of years. Well, Chris, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, Thank you for joining us on GreenSense and sharing all that great information. Thanks again for having me. That's Chris Higgins, General Manager of Hort Americas, giving us an update on the indoor growing industry. GreenSense is an independent radio show that relies on support from our sponsors and patrons like you so that we can produce a high quality audio broadcast that promotes innovators with sustainable solutions. Visit GreenSenseFarms.com to learn more about our show. I'm Robert Colangelo, and thank you for listening to Green Sense. And don't forget to catch the Green Sense Minute every Thursday and Saturday on 105.9 WBBM Chicago.